This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, plus the chance to vote each week on upcoming topics, while full membership gets all that, plus members-only bonus episodes. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the Koch brothers and the dark money movement they spawned to better understand exactly how to fight back. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, In Deep with Angie Coiro, Jacobin Radio, The David Pakman Show, On the Media, and a speech from the godfather of the anti-corruption movement, Professor Larry Lessig. If the Koch brothers had never decided to get into politics, they had just been working on cancer research and being living the lives of rich oil billionaires, what do you think would be different about American politics today? I don't think the libertarian movement would be anywhere near as strong as it is in, in, in American politics. They are the primary funders of libertarianism in America. And I, I just think that they have been tremendously influential in spreading that ideology. And I think, you know, you might be able to look at spending on elections and say it often is a waste of money. And you can look at, say, for instance, Tom Steyer spent a lot of money in recent elections and and has a pretty poor record of wins in, in the various elections. But that's not where I see the influence of the Kochs particularly. It's partly in elections, but that's really a minor part of what they do. They've subsidized an entire ideology and a kind of a conveyor belt that moves far-right extreme ideas into the mainstream. And they've done it in a really systemic way for 40 years, and they have endless amounts of money to do it. They're each worth something like – the last I saw was $60 billion is the about the fortune of of each – David Koch and Charles Koch, which effectively means they can spend it as much as they want on, on anything. And they've really seeded this movement. And it's the ideology, moving that ideology forward, I think, that has, has made the huge difference. And in a way, and I look at it as kind of like, um, I mean, we've been talking in the last year since Kellyanne Conway came up with the idea of alternative facts. But long before she gave a name to it, they were creating alternative facts through academia, through think tanks, through grassroots groups that are actually astroturf, that look like they're citizens' movements, that are pushing for policies, and they're using data that's that's false on things like climate change. And it's confused the whole debate in the country Um so I, I, I think they've had a huge effect. And how much of what has separated them from other rich men and women who have wanted to influence politics is just the sheer fact of their patience, where so many donors are fickle? Well, I think they've been very smart to take the long view, which you could say is patience. I mean, the thing is, Charles Koch is a true believer. This isn't just a, a put-on thing with him. He actually... You know, this is a, a heartfelt crusade for him. So it's, he's been working at it for 40 years because it's what he really wants. And, and he has an endless amount of money to get it. So I, I think taking the long view really helps. It's not just election by election. It's, it's, it's more of a plan to 
take over every state legislature. And if it takes 20 years to do it, fine. They'll be there for it. If you have to pour the money in in 2010 so that you can gerrymander those districts when you, when the Republican majorities take over in a census year, do it. I always find it really important that both Charles Koch and David Koch are graduates of MIT with multiple graduate degrees in engineering and they look at American politics like engineers. They're very bright. And they, they look at things as systems. And they, they felt that this country didn't believe what they believed in, in 1980 when Charles Koch got David Koch to run on the libertarian ticket as vice president. They lost horribly. They spent a ton of money and got 1% of the vote. And the country was nowhere near believing anything they believed. And they kind of looked at the whole landscape and thought, okay, how do we win? It's not going to be by running for office. We're going to have to change the way the whole country thinks. And they've been at it ever since. When I listen to the way liberals talk about Charles and David Koch, it often sounds like they're sort of the doctor evils of politics, but not in a in a funny way. They've become the they become cartoon, they become cartoon characters, cartoon and characters, you can make yes. them. You can, and they're not. They're not. What do liberals um, get none, wrong about the Cokes? Well, I mean, it, it, the, I think one of the things that's a really big mistake is to look at them as merely greedy and in it for themselves, because they probably wouldn't have been able to be successful if people just thought they were greedy old guys that are trying to make more money for themselves. And they are partly that because this ideology makes them richer by the second. But they wouldn't be able to convince people to come along with them if it was just to make themselves rich. What they've been able to do is paint a, a picture of of an ideology that has appealed to many, many people, which is they've defined the absence of government as liberty. And they're, they're saying what we're going to give you is liberty to, 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 to run your life your own way, get the government off your back. They've made the government the enemy. They've made regulations the enemy of a strong economy. And, and they've created a very positive vision that a lot of people have bought into. And unless you, unless liberals understand that there's a positive vision there that you're going to have to go to war with and try to paint a counter positive vision of what liberty means. For instance, liberals might be able to argue liberty actually means the ability for everybody of every income group to fulfill their potential, to get education, not to be impoverished by health care, to be able to have their children reach their career dreams, something like that. It's got to be positive. It's not you can't really fight the Cokes just with something negative is what I think. Let's do attempt to draw a bit of a graph. For those who have a rough idea that the Kochs and others have been involved in creating this machinery to generate thought, to generate ideas, all of them understand that ideas really are the real money, if you want to put it that way. That is the trading element of power in America. And you can say it started back with Lewis Powell. He didn't like what was happening with professors. He didn't like what was happening out on the streets with Vietnam. Or, you know, you can say that it started back with the Republicans taking a sharp right turn and deciding on the Southern strategy and learning that bit of messaging about, you know, the N-word. 
where do you consider what we are in now, the post-Citizens United era, where do you put a starting point? Well, I agree that, and I think if you want to say something positive about this movement on the right and and the Kochs is you have to give them credit for taking ideas seriously. They actually believed it was worth investing in this whole ideological machine that they built up and not just in elections, but in this machine. So you could go back to, I guess, when Goldwater lost there were a number of disappointed far-right conservatives who began, including Richard Melanscafe, to sort of get together and think, how do we get back the republic? Um, that's when the very beginning of it happens. But when the big sort of counter-movement gets going is you've got – this is in, – in the way I understand it is that – what you've got now is in many ways a reaction against what happened in the late 60s and the 70s. There was the, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and there was Ralph Nader, who was pu- pushing back against corporations and saying that they were irresponsible. And um, there was the beginning of the environmental movement, which was beginning to crack down on all kinds of corporate pollution. What you're seeing in a reaction to that whole sort of public citizen activism, and a lot of it was anti-corporate, was that the corporate money got poured into counterbalancing it. And the activists on the right linked up with the corporate money and started to fund a, sort of an organization, of a machine of alternative facts. They said, we are going to fight the universities, We're going, which is where the elite opinion is formed. We're going to fight the media. Um, places like the New York Times that viewed themselves as neutral were suddenly under attack for being liberal from, the, from this, you know, right-wing movement. Um, th- the interesting thing about Lewis Powell's memo that you talk about, which was in 1971, and he was a lawyer who was working for the tobacco industry, among others, and so he was right there where the corporations were being fought because tobacco was under, you know, under assault. His memo says, don't think that it's like the kids out in the street, the anti-war movement that's the enemy. The the enemy, he says, is elite opinion, and that's what we've got to change. And he's talking about universities, the media, preachers in the pulpits. That, you know, they are going to change the sort of the machinery that that spews opinion and change you know public opinion in the country. And so that's what they aim for in a big way. And the Kochs and several of the other really, really big right-wing corporate fortunes get um, harnessed behind this and basically fund, bankroll this movement. Of all the people that you cover, and you do mention that their family stories and their evolution as political beings are very different one to another, but there's a through line with most of them where no matter how much money you have, it's not enough money. <laughs> right. And that's why all the protective coloration, that's why we're going to talk about, you know, oh, keeping religion in the schools, that kind of thing. Primarily, it's a front for people who have money to get more money. Was that Lewis Powell's point of view? Because he seemed to me to be more ideologically motivated than money motivated. Well, I think, you know, he was somebody who thought that business, you know, corporate life in America was the lifeblood of America. And that you have to understand they felt threatened. One of the families I write about are the Olin family. And they had a huge chemical company and they felt that they were good citizens. But suddenly after the environmental movement, they were under assault for having 
created toxic waste dumps and and really poisoned a whole town down in in Virginia. So, I mean, they felt that they were upstanding and that they were being tarred unfairly. So you're asking, was it about ideology or greed? It's kind of a combination of both, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, You know, because the ideology that the Kochs have is really an ideology of self-interest. It's kind of like Ayn Randian. They believe that, you know, when people can free up their inner greed, they're better off. <laughs> well, and to look at the family, at the family dynamics amongst the Cokes, there's such a textbook case of enough never being enough. And you talk about the scene where three of the brothers, because there were four Koch brothers, not just the two that we all know about, the, of the four Koch brothers, one of them was gay. Everyone had just inherited tassels of money and would never have to worry about cash again. Their, you know, descendants through the next five generations would never have to worry about money again. But the three straight guys tried to blackmail the gay guy to get more money. That's just dazzling to put a word on it. That was just such a shocking scene to me. And Charles Koch, who's really the leader of the sort of political activism in that family, and a friend had gotten into the apartment in Greenwich Village of the brother that they thought was gay so that they could snoop around. They'd talk the, the, the superintendent of the building into letting them snoop around and then gathered up information with which they felt they could sort of trick him into a meeting and confront him. And the three brothers sort of arranged their chairs like a kangaroo court and they confronted the fourth brother and basically said, if you don't turn over your shares in this family company to us, we're going to tell dad you're gay and it's going to kill him. Um, and he'll certainly disinherit you. And, you know, this was back in the days when it was, you know, considered something that was almost unsurvivable to be yanked out of the closet like that. But to his credit, Fred Koch, Freddie Koch, he's the oldest of the boys, stood up and said, I don't want to ever hear about this again and walked out of the room. Um, he wasn't treated the same way by the father, though, in terms of inheritance. It was, he, his share was handled differently and I think less. It's hard to know all the details. But just the fact that they did that to their own brother gives you a sense that this is... Um uh, you talked about the dynasty. <laughs> it's, it really was. It's it's kind of amazing. I mean, you p- might have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist even to understand what money means to these families. And I think given that they've all got hundreds of millions, if not billions, it has to mean something other than just whether you can, you know, pay for the groceries. It's It's like, how successful am I? How do I stack up next to other people? How much do my parents love me? Do they give me as much as the other kid? I think it would be really interesting to have a psychiatric kind of account of these families. I'm I'm not capable of doing it. I'm just a reporter. But the dynamics are really wild. Well, I was actually so. grateful for some of the background information. I didn't think it was possible for me to feel sorry for any of the larger-than-life characters here. But when you think about the father of the Kochs and what he experienced in the era of Stalin, you can almost say, okay, I understand why he wanted to bring up his sons with a hatred and a distrust of government. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I'm glad because I'm trying not to make this into some kind of partisan ideological propaganda or cartoon or anything else. I mean, it really is a complicated story about real people. And so what happened was Fred Koch, the father, who really founded the family fortune, I had worked for Stalin and made quite a lot of money 
off of Stalin, but got to know engineers in the Soviet Union who were killed by Stalin and saw firsthand how people were being disappeared. And he was horrified, as anybody would be, and came back to the United States and harbored just a hatred of central government coming out of that. And he became a founding member of the John Birch Society. But what is interesting to me was he transferred that hatred of central government into a hatred of the United States central government, which he regarded sort of big government and social programs and anything that came out of the New Deal and after that, the Great Society, as sort of creeping communism. So, I, I mean, I might argue that he overreacted, um, <laughs> but but that is how that the impetus was. He didn't want to see America become like Stalin's Soviet Union. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that summarizes more than 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books, packing all the key insights into blinks that you can read or have read to you as an audiobook in just 15 minutes or so. It's great for catching up on some of the old classics you might not get around to otherwise, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Thinking Fast and Slow, but you can also keep up on the bestseller list as well, where there are more books coming out than any of us has time to keep up with. Uh, like, for instance, is my most recent listen that I can highly recommend, Bullshit Jobs from David Graeber. And I think it's important to point out that these aren't just abridged versions of books. They're detailed descriptions of books. Like if a friend were to tell you about a book they read in extremely well-organized detail. The point is, they're not pretending to be anything they're not, and I think the experience is all the better for it. If you want to check it out for yourself, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com best to start your seven-day free trial, and you can cancel any time. Blinkist.com best. As you've alluded to a number of times, Buchanan wasn't just a critic of higher education. He was also an institution builder mm -hmm. within it. And he was, was first at UVA, then a stop at UCLA, then Virginia Tech, and finally George Mason University. Um, give me a, a, an overview of, of his journey through academia and mm -hmm. the and what he built as he traversed it? It's very interesting. Um, when I, I he, he died in 2013, and before I got access to his archives, there was a memorial conference for him um, that I attended. And one of his colleagues, who is one of these key, you know, Coke faculty pig uh, figures, like a guy named Tabarak, said that Buchanan understood from the beginning that we needed a movement. I think that's a direct quote. I don't have the notes in front of me. But basically, Buchanan saw the need for a movement. So from that very first center that he created in Charlottesville in 1956 with money from the ultra free market foundation of the time, um, that was also, well, anyway, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but it was the key free market fundamentalist uh, funder. He got five-year startup funding from that, that, that organization and from the beginning approached his uh, academic work 
as movement building. And so he would bring in these visiting speakers who were part of the free market cause. He made sure to get fellowships endowed for students and the early students by the telling of people who were there would all come in sporting their Ayn Rand dollar sign tie pens. You know, I mean, it was really like a movement culture in academia and they were a very tight knit group. He always insisted on separate quarters for his ideological team from the rest of the economics uh, department. And so they were constantly thinking about how to, and in those days it was all men and it still is overwhelmingly men, but you know, how to bring in men into this cause. He, he called them our boys, you know, how to bring the boys into the cause, get them inculcated in these ideas, essentially get them set up for a life uh, in academic careers that in most cases then would be subsidized by the donors. Uh, and he did that in institution after institution with funding from uh, right-wing uh, foundations, you know, such as SCAFE in the 1970s, Coke later on, etc. But so the donors, the, the corporate arch-right donors would provide the funding uh, that would enable all of this movement building. And that's what they did. And so they trained people, many of whom went into academic jobs, but because uh, Buch many of Buchanan's students couldn't pass muster in regular economics departments because they couldn't do the kind of complex math most economists have to, many of them went off to the think tank world. And so I actually, there were two chapters that didn't go into the book, but where I charted um, essentially this diaspora that went out from George Mason of all of these people who came in and were um, trained in these programs at George Mason, who then went off to staff everything from the Heritage Foundation to the Reason Institute, to the Independent Women's Forum, uh, to um, uh, um, Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce. I mean, you just go on and on and on. There are like literally hundreds. And of this is sort of parallel to what uh, the Federalist Society did with the judiciary. Yes. And that was part of that because they were also the judiciary or the, I'm sorry, the Federalist Society was also kind of applying this model, right, of using the campuses as places, um, uh, uh, sources of a talent pipeline where they would get people in, bring them in, build on the campuses, um, you know, set up debates, provide fellowships, you know, create these lush conference um, possibilities, et cetera, and so change the country. And here's a really dramatic example of this, actually. The field of law and economics, which has been hugely important in changing um, the courts and constitutional understanding in matters involving uh, corporate prerogatives. Richard, and Richard Posner and, and Milieu. Yeah, but there was an entrepreneur who was crucial in that, an academic entrepreneur like Buchanan, whom Buchanan actually arranged to get hired as the dean of the law school at George Mason in 1986. This guy's name was Henry Manny. By then, Henry Manny had already been running since the 1970s, the kind of preeminent movement building entrepreneurial uh, operation to train legal scholars and sitting judges in law and economic thinking. Uh, he started it in the early 70s with seed money from Coke, continuing Coke funding through the years. By 1996, Henry Manny's summer camps had trained two fifths of all sitting federal justices. Two-fifths, 40% of all federal judges had been through a Koch-funded curriculum in Henry Manny's summer camps. So that's really an example, I think, of the very, very shrewd way God. in which this arch-right libertarian cause uh, has leveraged, in Koch's terms, uh, academia to support their effort to transform the wider society.
Charles Koch, of course, plays a big role in this story, and this is someone that listeners will be somewhat familiar with. Tell uh-huh. me a little bit about his his money, his political ambitions, the the constellation of libertarian organizations he he seeded and continued to yeah. fund, and, and how Buchanan fits into it. I, I am not persuaded that f- folks on the left yet have an adequate assessment of Charles Koch's capacities, right? I think there's a certain way in which a lot of us, and I count myself, you know, as guilty as anybody else, but there's a kind of smarty pants syndrome on the left, right? Where people think that um, people in the corporate world are, you know, that they're venal. It's like Buchanan's ideas applied to the corporate world, right? That they're only venal. They're just trying to lower their tax bills and regulation, maybe not very smart, et cetera. And so I think my book, um, also has value in the kind of know your know thine enemy <laughs> um, frame, which is to say that. Charles Koch is a really brilliant man, I think. You know, he has taken a company that, yes, he inherited, but he's multiplied it a couple thousand times over the value of what he inherited. Um, And he's done that by playing a very long game, thinking very strategically, reading constantly, and always trying to figure out how to get the edge on the competition. Now, in the business, that's the fossil fuel industry and all the other things that the Coke Industries conglomerate now controls, but it's also true of his politics. He has been serious about trying to transform the politics of the United States since at least the mid-1960s. And he has paid close attention to ideas. By his own um, accounting, he has funded hundreds upon hundreds of libertarian thinkers looking for the right strategy that would enable this breakthrough for a set of ideas that he knows are not popular with the people. Most people don't want to live in a libertarian world. So how to get around that? He found that strategy to get around that unpopularity in Buchanan's account of how the 20th century state grew. Koch has weaponized that to reverse engineer 20th century government to make it so we can't do anything for one another. And we're back to that Lochner world that we were talking about. Um, but anyway, I think this is important because, you know, and I think from the speaking I'm doing around the country and stuff, I, I, I know that people in unions and community groups and all sectors of the progressive movement are really realizing that um, they have been too confident by half, right, or by more, um, in the sense that people have um, not been paying attention to this very, very deep, sophisticated, strategic thinking going on on the right and to this very long game that has involved multiple stages and what Coach likes to call interrelated plays. And so suddenly after, you know, the 2010 midterms uh, and after Scott Walker took control in Wisconsin, you know, and others, you know, and this whole um, machine went into overdrive, people on the progressive star- side started realizing, hey, what's happening? Just as our 2010 ideas- was the big way up call for yeah, sure. Yeah, and just as our ideas have become ever more popular, you know, more and more people support the basic ideas and goals, you know, of, of progressives, but steadily losing power, you know, and able to win many, many individual campaigns, whether it's for living wages or family leave or this or that, you know, all these particular policies, particularly in urban uh, communities and some states, but winning these campaigns, but losing the war. And so, so I think to understand why that's happening, Happening, we have to pay attention to the strategy that has been embraced by the other side and to and understand the long game 
of that strategy and what the end game is. And I'm really happy that I'm hearing from readers now that they are finding the book very helpful for this, for understanding what it is that the right has built and done and how they have systematically been changing the rules to disempower the left, you know, and make corporations stronger and more dominant. And so, so I think that we can uh, deal with this and we can challenge it and we can, you know, um, you know, I, I do believe there's definitely hope of changing this, um, but but I do also believe it's an all hands on deck moment for democracy, and that um, moving forward requires a really sober assessment of um, what we have not been paying attention to, and how important it is, and how much we need to change the rules uh, again in order to favor democracy from what the Koch network has pulled off. Now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. As of the release date of this episode, we are 18 days out from Election Day. That's less than three weeks of volunteering time left. Early voting is now open in many states, and we've included a link to all early voting information by state in the show notes. We're only highlighting battleground races that are considered toss-ups. However, information for all of the battleground races can be found at bestofleft.com slash midterms. For the next two segments, we're going to focus on toss-up battleground races for the House that we haven't covered yet. Republicans are defending the vast majority of seats in the battleground races across the country, but the so-called red exodus of Republican incumbents leaving office is in Democrats' favor this year. 37 Republican-held seats are now open, and therefore more likely to flip. To take the House, Democrats must flip 24 Republican seats. Now let's dive into some toss-ups. In Iowa's 3rd District, Democrat Cindy Axney is challenging Republican incumbent Representative David Young. Obama won by four points here in 2012, but Trump won by three points. Young pissed off his constituents last year when, after saying he was opposed to Trump care, he voted for it at the last minute. Now he's running unbelievably misleading ads that claim he stood up to his party to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Yeah, keep telling yourself that. Early voting in Iowa began October 8th. Kansas's second district is an open seat race. Former Democratic State House Minority Leader Paul Davis is facing Republican Army veteran and engineer Steve Watkins. Trump won here by 19 points, but Davis, the Democrat, was recently endorsed by 36 Kansas State Republicans. One can only assume these are the Republicans that woke up to the severe damage extreme conservatism inflicted on their state. Early voting in Kansas began October 17th. In Kentucky's 6th District, Democratic Marine Corps pilot Amy McGrath is challenging three-term Republican incumbent Andy Barr. Although Barr won his re-election in 2016 by more than 20 points, McGrath is a strong, nationally admired challenger and is only behind in this deep red district by two points, within the margin of error. Of course, Barr is trying to paint McGrath as a radical on abortion, climate, and health care. McGrath supports a public option and a Medicare buy-in option, but falls short of backing single-payer. Early voting is not available in Kentucky. In Maine's 2nd District, Democratic former Marine and State Rep Jared Golden is challenging Republican incumbent Bruce Poliquin. 
No incumbent has lost an election here since 1916, but before Poliquin won in 2014, Democrats held this seat for 20 years. Obama won here by 9 points in 2012, and Trump won by 10 points. I know you'll be shocked to hear, but Poliquin is also wildly waving around the term radical to make Golden sound scary, you know, for wanting to work toward Medicare for All and expanding Medicaid. Early voting in Maine begins November 1st. In Michigan's 8th District, former Obama administration official Alyssa Slotkin is challenging Republican incumbent Mike Bishop. Trump won here by seven points. Slotkin, who grew up in Michigan and moved back to start a business after working for the CIA under both Bush and Obama, is being called an outsider recruited by Nancy Pelosi by Bishop's campaign. Slotkin has said she will not support Pelosi as House leader and is not accepting corporate contributions to her campaign. Early voting is not available in Michigan. And finally, New Mexico's 2nd District is another open-seat race because the Republican Steve Pierce is running for governor. Democratic attorney Zochil Torres-Small is facing Republican state rep Yvette Harrell to take this seat. Trump, Romney, and McCain all won in this district. Harrell is focusing on defunding Planned Parenthood, enforcing immigration laws, and shrinking the government. Meanwhile, Small is focusing on affordable health care, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, and fixing the VA. Small has raised three times as much as Harrell in a race where Latino turnout is critical. Early voting in New Mexico starts October 20th. As a reminder, voter purging is happening across the country, so we urge you to confirm your voter registration ASAP. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state's specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, call 866-OUR-VOTE to report the problem and get guidance. Links to all the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestofleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats in battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Saturday, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, in a motion that he did not consult the rest of his Supreme Court about, actually issued a stay on a ruling from a lower court that, had he not issued, would have forced the disclosure of countless dark money political campaign donors this past Monday. But Roberts knew that the lower court's ruling going into effect Monday would harm the Republicans in the midterm. So he came out Saturday and said, I'm issuing a stay. That ruling cannot go into effect. You're not going to learn the names of these people on September 17th, as the original lawsuit had said. That case was uh, actually decided back in August, but Roberts waited two days before those names would have become public to issue a stay. And he did it on a Saturday. You know, obviously, slower news day, people aren't paying as much attention. Why not jump in there and try to do it? But that's obviously a bad thing, right? And I told you this was a happy story. Well, here's the happy story. Here's the good part. The rest of his Supreme Court was paying attention. And the rest of his Supreme Court, liberals, conservatives alike, didn't like what John Roberts did. And yesterday, they vacated his stay 
and said, you know what? We disagree with you, John Roberts, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And apparently, when we band together, we're a little bit more powerful than you. So we're getting rid of the motion to stay that you had. And we're saying, release the names of the donors. The rest of the court, again, liberals and conservatives actually coming together to do something good for transparency and campaign finance, vacated his stay. So now, very soon, we're going to learn the names of the dark money donors who are controlling our elections. Now, the original lawsuit was against Carl Rove's uh, Crossroads GPS. The lawsuit was filed actually several years ago by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington crew because they wanted to know the names. But there was actually a law that's been on the book for decades that says this kind of dark money going to these politically active nonprofits is okay. You don't have to release the names of the donors unless that donor gives you money and says, I want you to spend this money on a certain thing. In that case, you have to disclose the name. Otherwise, you don't have to disclose. The judge in August threw that out and said, no, disclose all the names, everybody, no matter what. They give you money, you tell us who they are. That's how it's going to be from now on. John Roberts stepped in, politically motivated, trying to stop that from happening. Had nothing to do with the rule of law. He understood that the midterms are right around the corner and releasing the names of these donors could significantly hurt the Republican Party. But guess what? His stay got shot down by his own Supreme Court who believed he was wrong. Not just wrong in his ruling, but wrong to act politically from the bench. Because that's what happened. This wasn't about the law. This was about John Roberts' politics and his desire to protect the Republican Party and the upcoming midterms. So pay attention. As we get closer, start watching those political ads. Read the bottom. Because very soon, you just might see the name and finally know who, which human being, not organization, is actually funding those. Tidal is a different kind of music streaming app. They work to foster the relationship between artists and fans, and they value diversity in music, all while also using their platform for good. They offer unlimited hi-fi music and video completely ad-free, so you can play all your favorite classics and discover new artists, but they also host live events, and you're not going to want to miss Tidal's fourth annual benefit concert on October 23rd. The concert, Tidal X Brooklyn, will benefit organizations working for the critical issue of criminal justice reform, including the Equal Justice Initiative, Reform, the Innocence Project, and Cut 50. The stats on our criminal justice system are stark. Over 65% of prisoners serving life without parole for nonviolent offenses are African American, and one in every 15 African American males is incarcerated, compared to just one in every 106 white men. That means that one in three African American males can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The concert will feature performances from Lil Wayne, Miss Lauren Hill, Meek Mill, 
Anderson Pack, and more. So tune into the free live stream and donate to the cause at title.com slash Brooklyn on October 23rd. That's T-I-D-A-L dot com slash Brooklyn. Among the many parties pushing for the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh is the Judicial Crisis Network, a political nonprofit committed to, as it says on its website, strengthening liberty and justice in America. As recently as this week, that took the form of ads meant to drum up support for Judge Kavanaugh. With no valid reason to block Kavanaugh, Democrats started a smear campaign. Disgusting accusations, unproven, discredited. Kavanaugh denies them. Now, if you or some enterprising political reporter were interested in the Judicial Crisis Network's funding sources, you'd be out of luck. The JCN is a 501c4 in the eyes of the IRS, a so-called social welfare group that is not obligated to disclose its donors so long as its primary spending is non-political. That is, until the Supreme Court earlier this month let stand a lower court ruling that has the potential to throw open the shades and compel dark money groups to accept a more transparent status quo. Maybe. Michelle Yehi Lee is a national reporter covering money and influence in politics for The Washington Post. Michelle, welcome to OTM. Thank you for having me. When the Supreme Court declined to review the case earlier this month, it seemed like that might transform the nature of dark money politics. For anyone with an interest in transparency, what was the most optimistic series of events that could flow from that lower court ruling? If you're someone who is interested in the identities of the donors who have been giving to these dark money groups, the rosiest scenario that could happen here is that the groups start disclosing many of their donors who you had not heard of before as early as October 15th, which is the next quarterly deadline for these groups to file their documents with the Federal Election Commission. That would be quite monumental. But then reality rears its head. A new disclosure environment would require two federal agencies, the FEC and the IRS, to promulgate new rules and to adopt them. But there, Michelle, we run into political and bureaucratic dysfunction. Tell me how. The Federal Election Commission right now barely has a quorum. It's supposed to have six commissioners to vote on matters to decide whether to enforce the law, enforce regulations, hold groups accountable if they run foul of the law or regulations. But the FEC right now only has four commissioners, which is the bare minimum vote you need in order to do anything. The four commissioners are split along ideological lines. Two of them are Republican, two of them vote Democrat. So it's very difficult for work to get done there. And this has been the case for a while now. The FEC now needs to come up with brand new regulation, which takes months to write. And then it has to go up for a public comment period, which is probably another month or two. And then it has to come before Congress for at least a month. So there's a long way to go until some clear guidelines are given. On the other side, the IRS has really chosen to protect the donors' identities rather than to disclose their identities. And this is the way the IRS has been moving recently because they believe that there's too much room for error 
that there have been leaks of donors who did not want to be disclosed. So the IRS has moved away from disclosure. So it's really unlikely that these government agencies are going to do anything in time to make a huge difference for the midterm, certainly, or even in time to make a real difference next year. And let's just say, in some fantasy world, both the Federal Election Commission and the IRS do pass some explicit rules governing 501c4s and a similar category 501c6s. If we know anything from history, it's that political money adapts. If you're a political high roller and rules change, you know, you're going to find a new way to donate. If you ran the Michelle Yehi Lee Political Action Committee, what would be your next move? So if I were the Michelle Yehi Lee Social Welfare Nonprofit, I as a nonprofit could say to a donor, could you give me some money to help flip the Senate? And then I will use your money in whatever way it takes to get there. So these groups are now changing the way that they're asking donors for money. They might be asking to generally support what I support as a group. Please give us money. And then maybe they'll try to use the money for a political purpose. It's really unclear if that's allowed, but that's one creative way that the groups might start doing it. Another way that the groups may start operating is that they might give it to an affiliated super PAC. So I, as a Michelle Yehuri nonprofit group, take the donation and then I make a donation to a super PAC instead. That way, the super PAC only discloses the nonprofit that gave the money, the Michelle Yehuri nonprofit, and would not have to disclose any of the donors who gave the money to the nonprofit. So essentially, it's adding one more layer between the identity of the donor and whatever would trigger the disclosure of that person's identity. Also known as money laundering. That is what some critics might call it. I wouldn't, as an objective reporter, call it that. If there is a change in the uh, the political donor ecosystem, at what point do you think the status quo will change? By the 2020 presidential election, for example? Although it's not officially in effect, and we may not see any sort of official change in behavior for the midterms, it's already started altering behavior of donors and super PACs and nonprofits. The groups that I've spoken with, the donors that I've spoken with, have been aware of a possible change coming down the pike. And when the lower court ruling came down in early August, it actually put a lot of these groups on alert. So they have been scrambling to figure out with their legal counsel what this means for their fundraising for 2018, what they should be telling their donors, how they should change the script for asking for donations. And donors are already asking, well, what does this mean for me? How early could my identity be disclosed to the public? It's actually changed a lot of behaviors already. Let me ask you one last thing. However this plays out, it still seems to me like a surprising decision by a Roberts court, a Citizens United court, to let stand this lower court decision that complicated life for political donors. Can we divine anything about this situation beyond its particulars? There's very little we could read into the way the Supreme Court reacted here, because we don't know why that happened. We don't know whether that's because the other justices deadlocked 4-4 on this, or whether they just wanted it to go through the full appeals process. 
we just have no idea. What is interesting about this, certainly in the context of Judge Kavanaugh's nomination, is that after this case goes through appeal, it could come back before the Supreme Court. And if there is a Justice Kavanaugh who is not a fan of donor disclosure or campaign finance regulations, it could really make a huge impact in the way campaign finance regulations are decided on at the Supreme Court level. So it has really interesting implications there just looking forward. I'm not actually sure that what's necessary for us to succeed is even possible in America today. I'm not sure. Because the reality is what's necessary for us to succeed is to find a way for us to rise above the partisans in American politics, to find a way not to deny our differences, because there are real differences, not to minimize the importance of the values that we on the left really, really care about, like single-payer health care or a minimum wage that really makes it possible for people to live, or climate change, not to deny the significance of those issues, but to recognize that at certain moments, a republic needs to pause and to fix itself. And the only way it ever fixes itself truly is to step above the partisan divide and to reach across to people of honor on the other side and to say, let's put the arguments aside for a moment, the arguments of substance that we believe so much in, and let's focus on what we know we have to fix to make it possible for a democracy to work. Because we need to remember that before we were Republicans or Democrats, we were citizens first. And what we believe, what we believe in this movement in this Article 5 movement, what we believe is that constitutional change is necessary in America. Now, I've spent many years arguing that we can get a lot without constitutional change. We could fix a lot without actually changing our constitution. But that shouldn't be confused with the view that we don't need constitutional change. I think fundamentally our constitution has to be significantly altered to make it possible for democracy to continue to function. And that part of our reform movement is what you are so central to bringing about. So we can ask this question, what constitutional change? And the differences that I think we need to focus on are not as important as what unites this movement. And it's more importantly that we need to find a way that, to express what we believe. And what we believe is that we need this change in the basic frame of our government and a change not controlled by Congress. Because what we believe in this movement is that we believe Congress is the problem. Congress is the institution that has allowed the corruption of this democracy to evolve. 
And that's something people on the left believe and people on the right believe. This is what unites us and why we are here in an Article 5 movement. The failed branch of our government is the institution we have to find a way to fix, and that fact is a huge problem for the reform movement, for this republic. Congress in our Constitution is essentially untouchable. The institution is untouchable because we don't elect a Congress. We elect members to Congress. And what that means is in our voting, there is no one who we elect with the means or the motive to fix Congress directly. Now, this problem was not completely missed by the framers. Indeed, I think some of the framers saw this as one of the flaws in their original constitutional design. Just a couple days before the first draft of the Constitution was released, George Mason noticed this flaw because the then structure for amending the Constitution said that the only people who could amend the Constitution was Congress. It was Congress that would propose the amendments and Congress that could ratify the amendments by sending them out to the states. And what Mason said was, what if Congress is the problem? As he wrote, no, as he spoke on the floor of the convention, no amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government should become oppressive. And what that did was to lead to this least understood clause of our Constitution, the clause which you understand better than most law professors, Article 5's Convention Clause. Because what Mason recognized and convinced the convention of is that we needed a path around the corrupted institution of Congress, a path that would allow the people through their states to rally, to fix the Constitution, to avoid what could be the alternative, which would be a revolution. Now, what's astonishing to me is the ignorance the really astonishing ignorance about this clause. But the good news here is that it's bipartisan <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> so, for example, let me pick on somebody on our own side here for a second. This, this piece um, in the, uh, February 2016 describes this platform put together by a group of, quote, reform groups. Um, as it's described in the article, efforts are being undertaken in state legislatures to pass resolutions calling for a constitutional convention to send various constitutional amendments to the states for ratification. If these efforts are successful, it would result in the nation's first constitutional convention since 1787 convention that adopted the Constitution. It would also create the opportunity for a runaway convention that could rewrite any constitutional right or protection currently available to American citizens. <clears throat> this is, this is, this is conventional Wisdom? No. This is conventional ignorance in American politics today. This is what both sides believe. And we should be, rec we should be clear about how totally confused this rhetoric is. So let's start with these words, constitutional convention. 
The reality is an Article V convention is not what constitutional theorists understand as a constitutional convention. What a constitutional convention is, is a convention that has the power to blow up the existing constitution, to make up its own rules, to do whatever the hell it wants, because it speaks, as the French put it, and if it's put it in French, then it sounds more authentic, with the constituent power. The constituent power, the power of the people, is expressed in a constitutional convention, but that is not what Article 5 is. Article 5 is not a constitutional convention the way 1787's convention was. The convention of our framers was a constitutional convention because, was, I'm sure you know, they took their old constitution and just threw it away. They violated the rules for amending their constitution to get the new constitution. And they did so believing they had the power when it went out to the states and states convention to speak for the people. And they did so, they created this convention outside of the Articles of Confederation themselves. The Articles of Confederation had no provision for calling a convention. This was a convention expressing what Jefferson believed and America at the time understood that a people have an unalienable right to alter or abolish their constitution. That's what they were doing. But I don't know whether I know anyone calling for a constitutional convention in that sense today. Maybe there are. You know, maybe we're going to have to if we fail long enough. But right now, I don't know anybody calling for that sort of a convention. What I think we're trying to do is to call the convention spoken of in the plain language of this really hard to read document. <laughs> a convention for proposing amendments. It's a convention for a particular purpose. And that purpose defines its limits. Indeed, Article 5 goes on to describe expressly that whatever this convention does has no power until it is ratified by three-fourths of the states. So this language, this power created by the Constitution is something fundamentally different from what the framers of our Constitution were doing. They were giving us a power for proposing amendments, a power limited by the express terms of Article 5. The only power this convention has is the power for proposing amendments. And it cannot, in that sense, run away in the way people talk about the original constitutional convention running away. The only thing it can do is fail. Okay, I want to make one final point and I want to stop. I think no one takes seriously enough in this debate that this movement cannot be, cannot be, it cannot seem to be, partisan. It cannot be and it cannot seem to be partisan. That doesn't mean partisan sides can't rally for a convention. But the movement cannot be a partisan movement. Because if it is partisan, then it will fail. And the mechanism of its failure should be obvious to us. If there were a right-wing convention, which is the most likely outcome, 
of the current Article 5 movement. The most likely outcome is that there will be, in the next five years, a convention called for the purpose of dealing with an issue that America perceives as a right-wing issue. That will be a gift to the Democratic Party. It will be the gift of a money-printing machine to the Democratic Party. You've already get, you're already getting these emails from the Democratic Party. The DCCC writes these emails saying, the right wing is about to destroy our Constitution, and so what we need to do is to rally to stop the convention movement. And they love it, because fear and uncertainty and distrust produces extraordinary amounts of money for their coffers, and so they get hundreds of millions of dollars in this fight if this fight actually were produced by there being a right-wing convention out there. And the same thing with a left-wing convention or what's perceived as a left-wing convention. It would be a gift to the Republican Party, a money printing machine, which they would exploit by talking about how we're going to destroy the First Amendment, we're going to destroy the Second Amendment, we'll destroy the... Well, who cares about the Third Amendment? But the point is, (laughs) they will terrify their base, and their base will send all of their money to the Republican Party. Either way, we have to see, we have to hear what the consultants will say. They will be licking their chops when they recognize, so you must resist it. The consultants will love the world of a partisan convention because it gets them what they need, more money. You must resist it. We must resist it actively. I don't think we've done enough. Not to oppose, but to support a cross-partisan Article 5 convention, or a brace of conventions. The understanding that it would be two immediately, or one that can consider two sides. I think that it's critical for us to say, I support an Article 5 convention that would consider issues affecting the issues I care about, what I call representational integrity, all the ways in which we've allowed special interests to corrupt our election process, But I support that as well as a convention that has the opportunity to consider what we could call fiscal responsibility, what I think are disastrous ideas, but let them consider it. I support both because that's the only way for either to have a fair shot at making their ideas debatable among the people in the states so that Three-fourths of the states have the chance, the opportunity to actually ratify it. I support this not as a Democrat, not as a former Republican, but I support this as a citizen first. That's got to be our movement. That's what inspires me to join your movement. Brings me back to saying I'm not sure that what's necessary is possible. All that I'm sure of is it's necessary. And so if there is inspiration that it is possible, then let's just go for one minute back to this extraordinary event. So when people look at this painting, they think, what's the diversity here? (laughs) Is there a bunch of white men over 50? Uh, Well, you know, not all of them, but, you know, they're, they're all pretty old. They're all pretty old. Okay, and no doubt, no doubt the single most important blindness of our framers was their obliviousness to the issues of equality as it affects race and sex and 
wealth in certain respect, but I would quibble about that. Okay, fine. But we should recognize this is an incredibly diverse group of people. In this mix, there were people who believed slavery was the moral abomination of the age. And people who believed slavery was a natural power that any free society should be allowed to exercise. There could be no difference as fundamental as that. But what they could do was to bracket that difference long enough to craft a constitution to save the republic. Now, I'm the first to say maybe that was a bad thing. <laughs> you know, for the slaves, it was certainly a bad thing. Because what it did was embed that system, which many people think if there hadn't been a republic, slavery would have been over in 10 years, 15 years, because it couldn't have survived without the support of the North. So maybe that's true. But my point is not to say it's a great thing to have a constitution that embedded slavery. My thing is to say, my point is to say, if they could bracket the hardest moral struggle there is, we should be able to bracket our arguments about health care or the minimum wage. We should be able to say, I'm not giving up my fight. I'm not telling you I'm not going to fight for this. But we should be able to say, let's fix what we know is broken so that we can get back to a government that could actually deal with it. That's what they did. They could put aside those differences, and so too must we. We just heard clips today, starting with Ezra Klein, talking with Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, about the positive vision the Kochs paint for their movement that shows their ideology goes beyond just greed. Angie Coiro on In Deep also spoke with Jane Mayer in this clip about the family dynamics the Kochs come from. Jacobin Radio had on Nancy McLean, author of a similar but distinctly different book from Jane Mayer's. McLean's is Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Easy to get them confused. Anyway, Jacobin had Nancy on to discuss that deep history of the right, and this clip explains where the Kochs entered the story. Farron Cousins from Ring of Fire Radio was sitting in on the David Pakman show when he discussed the news of the Supreme Court's action that could force dark money donors to be revealed. But on the next clip, on the media threw some cold water on that, explaining that there were still plenty of loopholes and political gridlock that would help shield those donors. And finally, we just heard Professor Lawrence Lessig speaking at a Wolfpack meeting about what it means to call for an Article 5 convention and why it's the logical path to address money's corrupting influence in politics. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on today's topic. Uh, in the last bonus episode, I was talking a bit about the conservative take on nature and how it relates to their political philosophy. So I'm going to be adding to that with a clip discussing the psychology and philosophy of libertarianism with a former libertarian, plus a couple of clips on strategies for the left to take back power by standing against corruption. To hear all of that, to vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details on membership, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on your devices, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. 
Hi, Jay. This is Francisco Perez calling from Northampton, Massachusetts. First of all, let me thank you for the show. I've been a longtime listener. I also like to thank all the other contributors who pay for, for the show. Uh, I'm a broke grad student, so it's great to have the chance to listen to the show, although I can't personally contribute. I hope that once I do have a, a, a proper professor job that I'll be able to do so. I wanted to follow up on the conversation around socialism that was had on the show a few weeks ago. I'm still catching up on some episodes, so I apologize if I'm late. I wanted to say, really, there's four different definitions of what people call socialism. I wanted to see if I could outline some of these and hope to clarify the, the conversation for, for the listeners. First thing that we think of as socialism is uh, what we call central planning. Uh, under central planning, the government owns everything. They set all the prices and wages and set production quotas for the number of things that are going to be produced. This is what exists in the Soviet Union and to a large extent exists in Cuba and North Korea now. Uh, although this is what a lot of people, uh, socialism, this is what very few socialists actually advocate for. The second form of socialism that's probably a lot more popular these days is called social democracy, also known as sort of reformist socialism or moderate socialism. It's what the socialist parties in Europe, Africa, and Latin America call for. Here we have a capitalist economy, but one where private corporations are much more heavily regulated so that they don't abuse their workers, consumers, and the environment. There's usually a lot more unions and a much stronger safety net, higher taxes, and possibly public ownership and management of certain sectors like healthcare, education, and public transportation. Uh, again, this is what exists now in Scandinavia and in much of Western Europe. It seems to be what Bernie Sanders and his supporters have in mind when they call for socialism. The last two options, last two sort of definitions are less well known. The third option is what we typically call market socialism. In this system, the firms are owned by workers, communities, and the state but they compete in markets. It's socialism in the sense that there's no capitalist class, but unlike the Soviet systems, firms are free to set their own wages and prices and compete in markets. If firms are not profitable, then they theoretically go out of business. This system existed in Yugoslavia after World War II until about it's the, the 1980s when the Civil War started. It also, some people argue, existed in Hungary at times during its own communist period and in China in the 1980s. The last version of socialism that people uh, advocate for is called democratic planning. In this system, companies are owned by workers and local government, and there is a plan. There is no market. But unlike the Soviet Union, the plan is developed democratically. We would decide in our communities and workplaces how many houses, cars, tables, Q-tips, whatever, to produce on, and on how many of these things, based on how, many, how much we wanted to consume. Some of your listeners might be familiar with one proposal for this, uh, participatory economics or Paracon, as developed by Robin Hanel and Michael Albert. But if your listeners are interested in any of these, learning more about these options, uh, I, I highly suggest checking out the Next Systems Project at, the, at nextsystem.org. Thanks for the opportunity to call in, Jade. Stay awesome. Thanks. Hi, Jay. It's Stacy of the Bay Area. And um, we just witnessed my uh, a family member of mine uh, taking advantage of the End of Life Option Act in California. She was a terminal cancer patient. She had less than six months to live. And she had all of her faculties about her to say that, yes, this is what I want to do. And so she was absolutely qualified 
uh, to take advantage of the act. And I, I was present and I was there holding her hand when she died. And I'm wondering why this is not a national law. Why do we care more for our pets than we do for our uh, suffering human beings in our lives? I have, unfortunately, had the experience of, of my cat dying on my lap because I have great veterinarians who who one of them came out and administered the euthanasia drug to my cat while she was sitting on my lap and I had that experience and now just Saturday I had sorry <clears throat> sorry I had the experience of watching my beloved family member go as well. And I think that we would be a much kinder nation if we were to allow anyone in her situation to decide for herself that I am not going to suffer the next five months of this debilitating and horrible disease. I will just end it now, which is what my sweet family member did. And I, I wish that kindness on anyone else as well. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And, and I hope you will leave a message. I have a question for you guys. I, I just want to start a conversation. I, as part of my regular research, particularly for the upcoming show, I was listening to the Daily Podcast and their recent two-part series, The Battle for Missouri, and the crux of that story, I'm just telling you that in case you want to go listen for yourself as, as part of this discussion, the crux of that story was was one of these questions that's very central to our times right now, and so I, I thought, it's healthy to have political philosophical discussions whether any minds are changed or not is is almost secondary but just to just to make sure that we believe what we believe for good reasons that have good philosophical foundations rather than being on shaky ground otherwise so so um the the foundation of this two-part series was essentially should being pro-choice be a litmus test for Democrats in general. And we're not talking about Democratic uh, appointed judges. I don't think we're even talking about uh, Democratic politicians. Just 
Democratic voters, maybe, uh, you know, party people who uh, show up at the meetings. So there was a big discussion about it in Missouri because there was, for a very short time, language put in the party platform saying that the party was welcoming to those who did not believe in choice, essentially. I mean, they used very sort of gentle, flowery language to just say, like, hey, we're we're a, you know, open, welcoming party, even to those who uh, are, are anti-choice. And so I, I'm not going to get deep into the conversation now. I, I want to start a conversation. I would love to hear from you guys. What are your thoughts? I mean, go listen to uh, that series from The Daily. Again, it's a recent episodes, uh, The Battle for Missouri. Um, it's from the New York Times, uh, The Daily podcast. You've probably heard of it. Maybe not. And give your opinion, litmus test, yes or no, and why. And then we'll follow up with more conversation in an upcoming episode. I, I think I may have an angle that I can bring to this that you know, again, will not necessarily change minds, but will give us a new way of thinking about politics. And I think will just make us healthier for having rigorously challenged our own ways of thinking. So if you would like to weigh in on this, I would love to hear from you. The number again, 202-999-3991. And we'll continue the conversation in the coming episodes. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.